coming up on this edition of the Reenactors Corner Podcast. I've always loved helmets from World War II, and that has snowballed into, I want to get a helmet from every country from World War II. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again with Ben. How are you doing today, Ben? Great, great. Great to be back. Today, we're going to be talking about something that Ben is kind of an expert on. We're going to be talking about helmets, which Ben is crazy about and collects. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess you could say that's uh, my, my weakness, if you will, my kryptonite. So I guess for the first part of this episode, my plan is to do sort of a deep dive on German helmets, because that's where sort of my expertise lies. I know a lot of our listeners do World War II German reenacting, so we're going to get kind of in the weeds about World War II German helmets, all the the nitty-gritty details as they pertain to reenacting. And then for the rest of the episode, we're going to discuss some uh, nation, other nations' helmets. We'll be discussing uh, Soviet helmets. We're going to talk about all kinds of World War One and World War Two helmets that Ben knows all about. So, uh, having said that, Ben, for people who are listening to this, who are really don't know anything, they're just interested in in helmets. They don't know anything about World War Two German helmets. Can you just give a brief overview of the three basic World War Two models? Sure, sure. So the World War Two German helmet evolved from the World War I German helmet, which we can talk about later. But in broad brushstrokes, there were three models the Germans used during the war. Um, starting in 1935 was the M35, and basically the key feature of that is the vent holes uh, in the side were actually separate rivets, which were uh, pressed in. And then in 1940, they simplified that process, and so the two separate rivets uh, in the side uh, just became like a, an integral part of the shell. And so that's the M40. Looks just like the uh, M35, but the, the vent holes are different. But um, both the M35 and the M40 had a rolled rim, and in ni- 1942... They stopped rolling the rim, and they just went with like a raw rim, uh, which kind of flares out a little bit more. And so that was the model of 1942. So those are the three basic models of German helmet that most reenactors who are doing World War II impressions are going to be uh, going with. Yeah. So let's say I... My unit doesn't have any guidance on this. I'm trying to put together an impression. How do I decide which of those three helmet models I should be looking to buy? I mean, the 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 M40 was probably the most... I think the M40 is probably the best um, if you don't really have any guidance on it. Um, just because you can do some earlier stuff. It was introduced in 1940. The only problem with that is up until 1942. Yeah, 1942, summer of 1942. All all these helmets had uh, branch-specific decals on them. Basically, I recommend that 
if you only if you know what your impression is and you're not doing any other impressions uh you should get a branch specific decal because then you're good like you know 1940 to 1945 okay so you're what you're saying is that for you an m40 with the branch specific decal would apply to this whole 1940 to 1945 time span yes um, i would i would I and would. of course though there are exceptions to this yeah the problem is, though, if you do multiple impressions, then do you really want to buy two helmets, you know? Right, which can be a significant investment. Yeah, exactly. Um, because these things are not cheap. Um, they, I mean, to buy a refurbished World War II helmet, depending on the model, can cost you up to $400. Sure. So. Or, or more if you needed a giant size. Or more if you need like a 68, which uh, I guess brings us to shell sizes. Yeah, um, the World War II German helmets uh, were not made to be one-size-fits-all. No, unfortunately not. <laughs> so there were a range of different shell sizes that in each, of course, in the German way of being super overcomplicated, there were uh, something like five different possible sizes of these things in addition to custom order sizes that may have existed. Yeah, yeah. And each of those five different uh, shell sizes could have one of two different liner sizes. Yeah. And so in order to determine what size helmet that you need to wear, you need to measure your head, figure out what liner size would fit you, and then identify which shell size corresponds to that liner size, and that's what you have to get. Yeah, so to break this down a little bit more, so I wear a, so I am a size 59 head, and that corresponds to the size 66 shell. Size 66 shells were made to fit 50, size 58 and 59 liners. And sort of the next size down is a 64 shell, which was designed to fit uh, sort of uh, 56 and 57 uh, size heads. And, and when we're talking about these head sizes, we're talking about the circumference of your head in centimeters. Yeah. Yeah, and you know the smallest one I think was a size sixty shell for yeah. people who, by modern standards, would be a pinhead, <laughs> and then they were made up to size I think seventy or seventy two. I have apparently I've seen seventy four exists. Sure, like, there's like only like one known example, except for some massive yeah. cranial bulb that somebody had. <laughs> yeah, but um, the largest I think I've ever seen is a seventy two. And right, which are, is massively yeah. huge and would be a wildly expensive thing to buy as an original. Yeah, exactly. So for people who are in the market for original shells that to be refurbished for reenacting or who are going to buy a refurbished original helmet, um, they're lucky if, they're hel if their head is on the small size of that scale. Yeah, because you can get small-sized helmet shells you know, for relatively cheap. Like, I think 64 was, I read somewhere, if I'm not mistaken, the most common size produced. Yeah. And so there's a lot of size 64 helmet shells out there. And the demand for sizes smaller than 64, the demand is very low because those helmets won't fit the the vast majority of people today, I think. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. Uh, German soldiers in World War II, there were 17 million of them. So, of course, there were all different sizes of heads among those mass quantities of people. And a lot of those people had grown up malnourished during the Great Depression. So um, I'm not a, really an expert on the sizes of human beings over time, but I know that 
it, it's not uncommon for me to see World War II uniforms in what we would regard as child sizes. Yeah, I mean, look, I remember I talked to a guy who was a veteran of the Africa Corps, and he told me a little bit of his, about his childhood in Germany uh, prior to World War II, and he told me that basically he grew up in Thuringia, and uh, he and his siblings would forage for like nuts and berries behind their house in the forest, not for fun, but to supplement their family diet. Right. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Meat was scarce for a lot of people. Money was scarce. And so people who grew up malnourished, I think there were people who were physically developed, but who were sm- small. I yeah, think. yeah, due to a lack of nourishment and, you know, those formative years. I have original World War II field caps where I've never seen an adult human that would take that size. No, but like that was the reality for some people. So, um, you know, we're talking here about shell size. Um, I guess just so that people know, I think there is a there can be a common thing in reenactment where a reenactor may buy a helmet shell, as these things are available or up until recently were very widely available in vast numbers. Uh, shells with no paint or with post-war applied paint and then they buy the parts needed to complete the helmet which consists of a liner split pin hardware for attaching the liner and a chin strap yeah and then the helmet needs paint and decals yeah so for people who choose to go that route um there's there's two different choices. You can either send the helmet to one of many different artisans and craftsmen who uh, repaint helmets and apply decals as needed, or you can do it yourself. Mm. Now, Ben, I know that you have sent a lot of your helmets out to be restored. I have, I have. I mean, there's two people who I really recommend. There's German Helmets Inc., uh, whereas I got the first uh, helmet that I uh, ever uh, reenacted with. And then there's also Alexander and Sons uh, Helmet Restoration. And I, I think they're both excellent. So how does that process go when you send out a helmet? I mean, I'm sure it's different for uh, different helmets at different times. But what is the standard turnaround time? What is it like when you're trying to specify to the artisan what kind of uh, paint finish or decals you need or what, what work you need done? The process generally takes, you know, probably... About three weeks, I would say. Um, if, you know, uh, the restorer is, like, not on vacation or anything, um, basically, like, it goes out through the mail, it arrives, um, I'm in contact with the restorer, um, I send the sort of specifications that I want, so paint color and, uh, you know, decal and any other little touches and if he has all the parts i mean he can usually do the whole thing he can usually do the whole job in a matter of days or a week um actually i mean alexander and sons he can sort of do aging uh if you want something which doesn't look factory fresh which i i appreciate on certain helmets uh just so it already kind of looks broken in it doesn't look fresh out of the factory because most helmets that were worn by soldiers in World War II only only looked fresh out of the factory for a very short period of time. Um, so, yeah. Sure, the the real helmets were subject to daily wear and tear for field soldiers. Didn't you say there was a quote from a book you read, Chris, where um, the guy talked about how, like, his helmet looked different from every other 
helmet in uh, the whole the German army? I think I think it was in the Forgotten Soldier by mm, Guy Sayer, mm, in mm. which he describes his helmet. Um, and the helmet in front of them, and he, he know, marching, he's marching, yeah. and he's looking at the helmet of the soldier in front of him, and he can recognize that man by his helmet, by the unique wear pattern and damage and, you know, the wear characteristics that had happened to that helmet, which was different from every other helmet. It was different from his helmet. I can relate to that, because I know I can recognize, you know, people in my group by, you know, the wear on, the specific wear on, I mean, not just their helmet, but their kit. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, and of course, when you're sending off a helmet to get painted, there's almost infinite choices that can come into play in terms of paint color and decals and configuration, yeah. depending on um, exactly what you are trying to portray. The, this level of variation is part of what makes collecting original German helmets so appealing to collectors. And it, it definitely comes into play in reenacting. There's an almost infinite amount of variables. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes uh, a restorer might offer different shades of paints because the reality is there was no one shade of German helmet paint. Um, depending on maker to maker and uh, even just depending on sort of batch, uh, there, were, there were differences. That's true. And of course, that's not even taking into account things like depot reissues, yeah. field repaints, camouflage yeah. finishes that were applied at unit level, camouflage finishes that might have been possibly applied by the original sol- by the individual soldier in some cases. Yeah. Um, so what, generally speaking, you know, how can you figure out what kind of, of paint and decals are most appropriate for your impression? Well, I mean, if you're doing a German army impression, you should have a helmet with a German army decal. You can find some original photos where, you know, maybe there's an SS guy who's got a Luftwaffe helmet, you know? Like, I've seen some, but the reality is that is the exception rather than the rule. Um, now, that's... So, German helmets before World War Two, like M35s that we spoke of earlier, they were painted in, like, a smooth, glossy finish, but... Uh, in 1940, they went over to a more matte finish with a textured paint. The texture that the, the, the type of texture they used was aluminum oxide uh, granules in there, and the idea was that you know the textured finish would make the helmet look less shiny and less of a target for the enemy. Um, and so, and they also changed the color too. Like the pre-war helmets, uh, for every branch except the Luftwaffe, was this kind of glossy apple green. For the Luftwaffe, it was like blue. And then in 1940, went they went over to this color called uh, Feldgrau Dunkel, which is basically like a like a dark gray. Sure, and of course, these pre-war helmets had mostly two decals yeah yeah that's the other thing too so m35 helmets from the factory they had the branch specific decal so you know here uh kriegsmarine luftwaffe ss they also made them for the police so polizei um but then on the on the opposite side um and these decals were always right below the vent hole uh, they would have a national shield. Um, so for the for the army, for the Luftwaffe, um, and for the navy, 
it was this sort of tricolor shield that was red, uh, white, and black. And then for the SS, it was this shield with a swastika in it. And same for the police. So for a pre-war impression, if you're portraying a German army soldier, there's basically no options. You, that- ha- you have to get an M35. And it has to have yeah. two decals. Yeah. And the factory style, um, the the smooth apple green paint. Yeah. Of course, uh, for some soldiers and, and, and very early on, there were some use of World War One surplus shells as well. Yes. Known to collectors as transitional helmets. Yeah. Which we can talk about a little later. Yeah. But for, for most of your standard German army infantry type ni- 1930s, you know, late 1930s impressions, it's going to be the M35 with two decals and the smooth paint. Yeah. And then at some point after 1940, starting in 1940, now you start to have options. Yeah. They eliminated the decal. Um, there was an order to overpaint M35 helmets in the new darker gray matte color. Um, and. So and, and also then they simplified the production and they introduced the M40 model. So basically at this point you have almost countless variables because different units uh, took the order to remove the tricolor decal in different ways. Yeah. Sometimes they were simply scratched off. Sometimes the whole helmet was overpainted with a brush painting around the army branch decal. Sometimes the whole thing was overpainted painting right over the decal and then a new decal was applied. Yeah, and some of them may have been completely stripped and reworked. I've seen M35s that uh, are done with M40 factory style paint and the single decal. Yeah, and I will say this: a pet peeve of mine is it like a 1940, you know, 1944 event where somebody is rocking around with a with a, an M35 helmet. And, well, uh, an M- a reissued M35 helmet would be appropriate. Uh, double decal M35 helmet, I should I should clarify. Sure, the helmet's still in its yeah. pre-war configuration. Yeah. Now, not to say that there weren't that there were no helmets in 1944 that had you know M35 double decal, but I believe any that were were probably being worn by extreme rear echelon soldiers. You know, I think it, if you looked at enough photos and newsreel clips, you could find photos of double decal helmets in use in combat in 1944, but so rarely. Yeah, yeah, very rarely, very rarely. To me, not something that is appropriate for a reenactment unless you somehow have specific documentation to indicate that the specific unit being portrayed had a preponderance of helmets somehow in that configuration. That's it, you know, that's it. Which I wouldn't rule out the possibility of that. No, I mean, these things could have been like sitting around in a warehouse and never got like, you know, refinished and... uh, then some unit needed helmets, but again, documentation first. What about the use of camouflage painted helmets and reenacting? What's your take on that? I think it's very theater and year specific. I think it's extremely theater and year specific. They don't really seem to crop up on the Eastern Front in, in, in many photographs unless it's uh, like a winter uh, whitewash. Um, most camouflage helmets I see are in like Italy or France. Um, And it was usually done on a unit level. And so it would be, I think, pretty unusual to see one guy in a group rocking around with a camouflaged helmet. Like the whole unit would have, would paint their helmets at once. There might be some variation, but they would 
kind of be going for the same thing. And so I think, I hate to say it, but a lot of times in reenacting, you see like one guy who has a camouflage helmet, and I'm sure that did happen in in World War Two. But I think the most of the time, it was done on a unit level. Sure. And the thing is, that's expensive. And I don't actually know if I've ever seen a whole unit that's committed to painting to camouflage painting their helmets. The uh, unit that I used to reenact with, we had got a British universal carrier. This was something that was used in the captured format by the unit that we were portraying as a kind of airsats Panzerjäger vehicle called a Panzerjäger Bren. So this is an open-topped sort of armored personnel carrier that had initially a machine gun mounted at the front. The Germans uh, captured these in some numbers and equipped them with anti-tank rockets and were kind of deploying them as sort of this light mobile anti-tank force. Obviously not in huge numbers, but definitely in the specific group that we were portraying. And in the photographs that we have of this uh, vehicle configuration, the vehicle is painted in a camouflage scheme. And the helmets of the soldiers that are crewing this thing appear to be painted in the exact same camouflage scheme. Well, you raise an extremely interesting point, Chris. Um, I think basically, and I think other collectors would agree with me, that a lot of camouflage helmets, um, especially spray-painted camouflage helmets, were done based on the availability of paint sprayers. And so maybe if you had paint, if you had these, they didn't have spray cans in the 1940s, as far as I'm aware, but they had sort of pneumatic paint sprayers. And if they had those to paint a vehicle, maybe the troops who were painting the vehicle also decided to paint their helmets at the same time. Um, so like a Panzer Grenadier unit, you know? Sure, not only the availability of the paint sprayers, but the paint itself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Units were supplied with camouflage paint for the purposes of camouflaging unit equipment. And in some units, that was interpreted as including, I guess, the helmets. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, what about other ways to camouflage the helmets, like, um, you know, stuff that you can put on there? Well, I mean, the SS were famous for their use of camouflage. They, you know, were using... Camouflage helmets, helmet covers, uh, at least in some degree before the war, and and there were basically some most SS units uh, had camouflage covers for a lot of World War Two, and uh, even the army came out with their own sort of pattern of ham- of a helmet cover. So some some army units uh, got a lot of camouflage helmet covers. But that said, you also see guys um, with, you know, they might, like, wrap their helmets in wire, and you might think, well, why would they do that? Well, it's because you can uh, you can stick foliage in the wire and break up the outline in, like, tall grass. So some people used wire to affix the foliage. Yeah. Some people used um, the bread bag strap, the issued strap for the bread bag. Yeah. Yeah. And some people used a band for, cut from an inner tube, a rubber band. And I've seen uh, all kinds of wire used, chicken wire, full basket, half basket, communication wire, uh, bailing wire. You know, there's just this massive amount of variation. Sure, sure. It's cool. You can kind of get wild with it. Although I will say, this is again, I, th- I think a thing where it was done kind of like on a squatter unit level. So like... 
you know, the Feldwebel might have ordered everybody to, you know, put wire on their helmets to camouflage them. A couple of reenactor modes that I can't stand are the squad where one guy has a splinter camouflage factory issue helmet cover. One guy has a field made helmet cover made of a cut up piece of camouflage fabric. One guy's got a camouflage painted helmet. One guy's got a bread bag strap for camouflage. Two guys have a standard helmet. And then one guy has, you know, a crazy wire configuration. I just think that really, uh, that's a look that to me is not typical of wartime photographs or footage of German soldiers. I have seen that far, far, far too often because all of the things that you described uh, existed in original photographs, but it wasn't like a sort of a G.I. Joe, everybody like chooses their own unique camouflage. It's like either the whole squad was wearing a you know generic helmet most of the time or... The whole squad was wearing one variant of, you know, the camouflage. You know, they all had wire. They all had uh, burlap. Or they all had uh, issued factory helmet covers, you know? Sure. Another reenactor mode that I hate, and this I really hate, and I used to see this a lot more, unfortunately not so much lately, is the guy who has the camouflage cover with a camouflage wire on top of the cloth cover, and then maybe he's got a bread bag strap on there as well. (laughs) I don't know if I've ever seen that. There is a person who you and I both know, and I will tell you off the record, who used to do this. And it's like all of those things serve the same purpose. Yeah, yeah. I actually even think that the wire over camouflage paint is like a little excessive, you know? Sure. I feel like that's like not necessarily typical of most camouflage helmets. Like most camouflage helmets would have been wire or camouflage paint, you know? Sure. And it's certainly, like you said, with some other stuff, this is a thing that did happen in World War II, certainly, but not so frequently that I necessarily think it's appropriate for a reenactment portrayal. I mean, I love camouflage helmets. I think they're super cool. I think they're super interesting. That said, we what our, what our unit does, I don't think there's any scenario in which I could wear a camouflage helmet, really. Sure. It's really interesting. So for, for anyone who doesn't know, Ben and I are in the same reenactment group, and we portray a Sickering unit, which was kind of a rear area, second line sort of uh, German army unit for the most part. Um and what, what's really interesting is is that I see in multiple cases, looking at documentation from this unit type, the use of helmet nets yeah, for camouflage purposes. Yeah, yeah. So even though these guys weren't supposed to be frontline soldiers, in some cases, in, in enough cases that it crops up you know, here and there, uh, these guys were issued nets for camouflage purposes. I think that's really cool. Um, but like, I'm talking about like a spray painted camo. Like no, I agree with you. Or a three color Norman. Like the only time I can think that, you know, we might be able to get away with wearing camouflage is some sort of like winter white camouflage. And that said, even then it would be weird if like one, only one of us had like a winter overpainted helmet. No, I would, helmet. I yeah. would only allow it if we all had it. Yeah. Now, uh, it's my understanding Although white painted helmets were used as winter camouflage during World War II, more often it was like a white wash that was applied. Yeah, like a water-soluble paint. And uh, I think it, they also applied the same sort of whitewash to vehicles. And the idea behind it was that 
the sort of you could you could get it off in the spring with relative ease you know just like apply apply water and some scrubbing and this stuff will come off it was like chalk based yeah like as the snow was melting it might even be wearing off your helmet yeah. through handling and use yeah and yeah. it's not uncommon to see original helmets that um are not camouflage painted, but that have traces of white finish in the crevices around the air vents or around the uh, liner split pin hardware. I think that's super cool. X whitewash helmets. That's super cool. Um, I did want to circle back around just a little bit. We mentioned the texture, the aluminum oxide texture used on the factory applied finishes. This to me, I just kind of wanted to insert a note about this where a lot of reenactors seem to seize on this fact that generally speaking wartime painted helmets were painted with uh, aluminum oxide textured paint i think uh, there is a tendency for reenactors sometimes to go a little bit overboard with this texture so i think i know where that comes from um if you look at an american helmet from world war ii it's got this very heavy uh like a crushed cork texturing and I think some people think that the German helmets were like that. Honestly, on most original helmets that I see, the texturing is very, very, very light. And uh, I think a lot of restorers actually kind of overdo the aluminum oxide uh, because reenactors like that. And because that's that's my opinion as well. It's desirable to yeah. have this extremely textured look. And I think that there are some factory painted helmets yeah. that have a look like that. But I think more typical was a more subtle texture. And of course, a lot of the original helmets that we see today are worn and with handling and wear, it can take take some of the texture down yeah i've even seen this on my sort of restored helmets where you know they 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 were pretty textured when i got them but you know years and many events later they seem less textured because that's it it it's it's become smooth it's worn it, it's become worn with use sure so ultimately i think i've seen enough um mint condition or near mint condition helmets to say that there definitely was a wide range in the amount of of texture and probably even the size of the granules used for the factory applications late war m42 helmets very often have a thin paint that uh, didn't hold up very well over time it's common to find these helmets with some rust on them and that thin paint has it has texture but it's not a lot yeah 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 Um, what about what about reproduction helmets we've mostly been talking about restored original helmets um you know are there are people who say that reproduction helmets aren't usable what's your take ben personally i think there's some m42 helmet reproductions that are actually pretty convincing that said um i've yet to see an m35 or m40 reproduction that i find to be convincing like the rolled rim and on an M35, like the air vents, uh, it's it's just always not quite right. Um, the other thing too is, and you kind of would think the opposite, but like reproduction helmets way more than originals. Um, but that said, I believe original helmets were made with a sort of, for lack of a better better word, like armored steel that was meant to be lightweight where reproduction helmets are made with uh, like a mild steel that might be easier to shape in these factories in china and so i'm kind of a stickler i would prefer to have a restored original i um 
I think you, you bring up a good point about these factories in China in that uh, there's so many retailers that sell reproduction helmets, yeah. but nearly all of them come from the same manufacturer. Yeah. So this is, again, a case where people are oftentimes make, trying to make a difference between one supplier or another, not realizing that it's, it's the exact same project. The other thing, too, right? is um, I just don't find the, 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 the stock factory um, paints on the reproductions to be convincing. Um, like I think that if you got a reproduction and it doesn't like have a helmet cover on it, I would recommend repainting it. Sure. I'll share like a little anecdote with regard to these helmets. You mentioned the, the M42 helmets that are out there. I bought one of those on eBay some years ago. It came direct from China. It was really cool to get the package because they had just wrapped like a real thin layer of padding around the helmet. So I got this helmet shaped package in the mail from China with, a, cool. with an address label on it. And uh, what I did was I removed the, the split pins and took the liner out. I stripped the helmet, which was an unbelievable ordeal because there was actually like a fiberglass paste underneath the paint that I needed to mechanically grind off with a wire wheel. And then I blued the helmet so that the surface of the steel was dark, which is how these helmets originally looked when they came off of the presses. And then I painted it a correct shade. I used the liner that I had taken out of it and reinstalled it with uh, some more, I thought, realistic for the M42 model steel split pins instead of the brass ones that it came with. And that was my reenacting helmet at one time. And I had a, a potential recruit at an event, and he was asking me, look, are there any reproduction helmets that are usable? And I took the helmet that I was wearing and put it on the ground, and I found someone who had an M42 helmet original restored that was the same size and put them next to each other and said, check it out, show me the differences. And he was like, I'm convinced. This is great. This looks, this looks the same to me. That's cool. I mean, I, uh, I respect all your effort that you put into restoring that thing. Uh, but if a, I, if I had done that with it as it came out of the box, I mean the I, the paint color was wrong. There was yeah. bondo under the paint. Yeah. The the brass rivets aren't weren't really correct for the helmet model. Yeah. Even as the things wear in their sort of out of the box condition, they just don't quite look right. You know, like the bondo's exposed. You know, you see the brass rivets, which was more which was M thirty five helmets before the war did have brass rivets, but right. like, but a factory use of that yeah. in an M forty two helmet would be very unusual. Yeah, and uh, like th this helmet that I got, it had multiple layers of paint over the bondo. Mm. So that thing had that thing worn, the scratches would have revealed. I think there was tan paint under the green and white paint under that, a primer wow, layer or something. Wow, that's wild. Just for people who aren't aware, German helmets weren't primed before they were painted at the yeah. factory. Yeah. It, they, I think. I read this, and I don't know if this is actually true, that there was some sort of a mild acid in the paint when it was applied to help it adhere to the steel surface. I don't really know if that's true or not. Yeah, that would make sense, but again, I don't know. Yeah, like a self-priming paint, you know? Yeah, yeah, this, yeah, this, yeah. Now that it, hearing it actually come out of my mouth, I feel like this could be a myth and lore thing. I'll have to look into that and see <laughs> if that's the truth. Um, but the liner that came with that reproduction helmet, it was like good enough, but it wasn't the best reproduction yeah, liner. Yeah, the other thing too is the liners aren't spot on, you know. They, uh, they, they're, they're again good enough, but... Uh, 
an advantage. So you mentioned the M35 and M40 reproductions, and there are a variety of these, and they've been around for years. And I don't profess to really know the ins and outs of every manufacturer. I ha- I'm not claiming to have seen every manufacturer, but an advantage of these helmets is that these helmets are available in large sizes that can be uh, cost prohibitive for some people or even in some cases like rare to find yeah i mean i know they make reproduction size 70 or size 68 you know m35 and uh, m42 helmets and so i mean good luck finding a size 70 you could wait for years to find one you may I, i don't know that i've ever seen one for sale like i it's hard enough to find a size 68, which was the largest sort of standard production size. Try finding a size 70. I, you might be waiting for years. So if and you are that size, re- reproduction is probably your best bet to start. If you're a you size 70, lucky. it's yeah. probably your only bet. Yeah. And yeah. Actually, I do remember there was a guy who was at Stalingrad who had a size 72 helmet restored. I think it was M35 or M40. I was shocked. Biggest helmet I've ever seen. That's wild. Yeah. Uh, so for people who take a size 68 helmet and who need an M35, um, with an M35 helmet at size 68 is a is a very expensive proposition. If if you're talking a restored original, you're looking at probably 450 to 500 dollars. You might pay 500 dollars just for the shell. Yeah. And that's a, that's a pretty significant chunk of the cost of an entire impression. Yeah. And so. Um, if I was in that situation, I think there are ways that you can buy a reproduction and make it look as realistic as you can. If I would allow people to use reproduction size 68 M35 helmets in my group, I think sure, that, sure. Um, I sure. think they're, they can be made to be a, a very close, if not identical. Sure. I think, I, I think concessions have to be made in that case, you know, just given the, given the cost. I mean, to put it another way, I think that there are it's my opinion that there are size 68 M35 reproductions that are as close to the originals as the vast majority of equipment that most reenactors use is to the original, whether they know it or not. I think that's, I think that's a reasonable comparison. Um, we mentioned the, the Chinese liners, the best reproduction world war two liners come out of the Czech Republic. Yep. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's multiple manufacturers there making the liner bands and components, or if they're all from the same manufacturer. I really don't know. I've seen some variation. I think some are better than others, but um, yeah, I I would agree the check are the best. I have bought them from directly from sellers in former Czechoslovakia, and for prices that are cheaper, even taking into account the shipping, than what it would cost to buy them from some of the uh, resellers located in the United States. Sure, but they're still. How much would you say they're? How much would you say they are? Like at least fifty dollars. Yeah, I would say fifty bucks. Yeah, and maybe you're paying seventy bucks. And yeah, between between like I don't know forty and seventy dollars, you'll pay for one of these things probably. And then you need, in order to put that into your helmet shell, you need the split pins, which are going to cost maybe another twenty dollars. Yeah, yeah, and they have like a little washer on them, you know. So yeah, it's not hardware that you can buy at the hardware store. It's this, all of this, of course, is reproduced for hobby purposes. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, and then I guess the other option is to look out for a helmet that's already been restored, that has maybe the paint that you want, that has the liner that you want, the chin strap that you want. And there are a number of resellers, uh, resellers all over the world that are offering 
these things sure. in various sizes and configurations, you know, ready to go. You can order it. You could get it tomorrow if you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. mentioned German Helmets, Inc. They have restored complete helmets. Yeah, the only thing is they don't put the decal on there. So you have to do that yourself, which can be a little daunting. Um, yeah, not going to lie. So there exist cheap water slide uh, transfer decals that are very easy to apply, but those aren't really the same as the World War II decals. And you No, the best ones come from either 1944 Militaria in the United States, or there's a company in France, what is it, uh, Decal Helmets? or it's D-Day 1944. That's it, that's it, that's it. Um, so yeah. there's a couple of different sources of high-quality decals. 1944 Military, in addition to selling the decals, also sells uh, restored helmets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, yeah. at the front is another vendor, since we're dropping some vendor names in yeah. here. Now, Chris, I remember um, you tried to restore a, a Finnish helmet, which actually brings us to Finnish post-war helmets uh, some years back. Oh, the helmet that I... So we're oh, going to have it, to talk about Finnish post-war was it helmets. Was Finnish or was no, it, it fair? The helmet that I restored was a post-war German M40. Ah, okay. Yeah. And I restored it myself. I used paint from 1944 Militaria. They sell Feldgrau Dunkel paint in a correct shade. And I applied the paint with a sort of misting technique from a few feet away in such a way that some of that paint was sort of drying before it was hitting the freshly painted helmet surface. And that created a, a texture that to me looked very close to the subtle texture that was commonly used on a lot of different. If I recall helmets. correctly though, you actually like over textured it and then had to strip it. Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah. It was, uh, these things are not an exact science and there is an aspect of trial and error to it for yeah. sure. Sure. But I bought a high-quality liner and chin strap from a seller in former Czechoslovakia, and I applied a decal from the, the French company, uh, I think it was a D-Day 1944 yeah. decal. And I think that that helmet looked fantastic. I agree. That thing was great. I think uh, it was awesome. There were helmets that were made, I guess, in Germany after World War II for Finland, Right? Is that where these things came I from? I thought they were made in Finland. Maybe but... they were made in Finland. There's, this is an area where there are like sales pitches. Yeah, I don't actually know the story. If somebody knows the story, I'd actually appreciate hearing it. But so in World War II, the Finns used a myriad of different helmets. They used World War One German and Austro-Hungarian helmets. They used World War Two Italian, German, Hungarian. Um, I think they had some like Swedish helmets in there too. They used basically every helmet that they could get their hands on um, because they were in a really sort of dicey supply situation. But uh, after the war, they kept using German helmets and maybe licensed produced their own. Yeah, I, I, I don't know where these were made, but they, they're post-war made helmets. It's in the style of a German M40. Um, these things appeared on the surplus market kind of en masse, uh, the company International Military Antiques must have bought thousands of these helmets. Yeah. And so these helmets have just been very widely adopted by reenactors. There's probably hundreds of them out there in reenactment use. You can still get them from IMA. What's your thought about these helmets, Ben? I think they're okay. Um, they need a lot of work. Out of the box, um, you're probably better off with the reproduction um, if it's in like unconverted form. If you're buying it as a project, I think that's probably the best thing for it. Um, basically, you know, the paint's wrong. Um, 
Yeah. So when you get it, when you get it in its finished configuration, it's in, it's got finished paint, it's got finished liner and it's not, none of that stuff is correct or usable. Personally, I see some that have like a lot of dings in them, which aren't really characteristic of World War II German helmets, which leads me to believe the metallurgy might not be quite what the World War II German metallurgy is. There are some differences. The markings inside the the skirt. The markings inside, and also I think the biggest one that's external is the vent holes. The vent holes are kind of like big and fat compared to, you know, World War II German helmet vent holes. Anything you want to push back on, Chris? Well, there were a a number of different manufacturers of German helmets in World War II. I think there were five makers or something like that. Quist, E.T., is it? N.S., S.E. Yeah. E E F E F. That's it. That's it. So, the there out of those <clears throat> makers, the maker that used the maker mark Q, which was the form of Quist in Esslingen, they had a large rounded vent hole that looked similar to the vent hole used on the Finnish helmets, which I think also can vary from. Uh, I don't know if they were all made by the same maker or what. They're not all the same. They're not yeah, all exactly the yeah, same. Yeah. I've seen Finnish helmets that have a visor. I think they're Finnish. Helmets that have a visor that's a little bit smaller, I think, than a wartime helmet. But not all of the helmets seem to share the same characteristics. Yeah, yeah. Also, there are helmets that are offered as Finnish that are that are post-war German M40 helmets that maybe weren't made for a Finnish contract and vice versa. And, you know, so I don't profess to be an expert on Finnish helmets. I And also the Bundeswehr did sort of make, continue to make and use the M40 model helmet after the war, as we alluded to earlier, which was what you had, Chris. I don't, I don't know if it was the Bundeswehr or if it was the uh, various civil organizations like yeah, police yeah, and, yeah. you know. The, the the history of the German helmet didn't end in 1945 by any means, yeah. Um, but that's that's kind of the whole the whole thing on German helmets, I guess. Ben, let's start talking about Soviet helmets. Can you give me kind of a real quick rundown on the World War II Soviet helmet models? So prior to World War II. Um, the Red Army, I believe, in an effort to appear more Western. Uh, had a lot of sort of Western-inspired equipment. So they were using, like, a greatcoat with collar tabs that were inspired by the French. They were using a backpack that was inspired by the Germans, the OBR-36 uh, Ragnets. Um, and they're using this bizarre helmet, which kind of looks like a cross between a World War uh, One German helmet and a French Adrian helmet. It's kind of got like German lines, but uh, it's also got like a comb on the top, which which uh, covers a vent hole, um, and that's known as the SSH-36, and those are produced ni- basically 1936, as the name implies, to 1939, um, and they're cool helmets, but uh, yeah, those were basically dis- discontinued in 1939, and they they get kind of rare by you know the wartime years. And then in 1939, they introduced this sort of round helmet um, called the SSH-39. And it was produced initially with a fingered German or Italian-style liner. Um, and then they went over to this kind of sock, quote-unquote quote sock-style liner, um, because that was simpler and easier. And... Then in 1940, they came out with the SSH-40, and the distinction between the SSH-39 and the SSH-40 is the liner type. The SSH-39 had the liner secured by three 
sort of uh, little rivets at the top, and the SSH-40 had a simpler three-pad liner that was secured by six uh, rivets around the circumference. And so you, you really can't tell the difference unless you can count the number of, uh, of pins and the position of them. Okay, so three different uh, shells <clears throat> and three different liner types, of course, with, with variations in, in chin straps and stuff. Yeah. We could spend another 45 minutes just dissecting this, yeah. this other area of helmets alone. Um, but, and it, and it's, it's totally different from German helmets in the sense that the liners are riveted in, right? Yeah. So to install your own liners becomes very difficult. Yeah, you need... I mean, the lucky thing is that the SSH-40 helmet was produced until 1960. And the post-war ones, which are still widely available as surplus, are basically identical to the wartime ones. They, they are identical to the wartime ones. And so if you're portraying like a wartime Soviet impression, um, then you really don't have a problem. You can just buy a post-war SSH-40, which are still available for under $100. And uh, the other thing, too, is these things came in, unlike the Germans, the Soviets had three helmet sizes um, instead of like five plus. So there was like a one, two, or three. Okay, and of course... Um you know, talking about this 1940 model that is still available as surplus, is, is the paint the same color as the wartime paint? I've heard it basically said that, yeah, it is. And, like, I've seen post-war SSH-40s that have been heavily worn by reenactors that look pretty realistic and consistent to original uh, SSH-40s um, that uh, or wartime SSH-40s. What about the chin straps? I remember reading something about a distinction maybe between leather or web chin straps or different styles of web chin strap. Well, the web chin strap existed. You see that on the SSH-36. Um, actually, you see you see a variety of chin straps in the SSH-36. You see, like, uh, they, were used to, they were still using some leather chin straps. Um, they also had chin straps made of, like, a double twill material similar to Soviet trousers. And then they had web ones. Um, and they kind of standardized in the web chin strap during the war. Um, you see, I think some attribute, you see some like weird kind of ersatz chin straps made out of like canvas or leather that are associated with Leningrad because they were besieged and they were kind of making stuff on a cottage industry there. But, uh, I think, uh, if you have like a SSH 40, helmet with a with a web um chin strap that's fine are they the same as the world war ii web chin straps do you think i believe they are i believe they are uh i can't do a podcast with about helmets without talking about the m16 and uh, world war one style german helmets and the derivatives of them they're yeah. my favorite helmets oh my god those things are awesome from just an aesthetic perspective and also from a historical perspective because you've got these these helmets were introduced initially in 1916 for use by the german armed forces there were changes made to the helmets in uh, 1917. They changed the liner, and then in 1918, uh, they changed sort of the, the chin strap bail. Some other details changed, but the overall massive look of the helmet with the large 
Frankenstein bolt type construction uh, coming out of the the ventilation eyelets for attaching the armor to the front of the helmet didn't change. Um, and there was also a 1917 model that was adopted by the Austro-Hungarian military who used those in connection with German-made helmets. It's so cool. It's I, I, I love them. And of course, these things, they were used, you know, by, you know, the the interwar German military. They were used in the early days of World War Two by uh, the Wehrmacht. And you still see them popping up um, in reissued form by in, with second line units in World War Two. I've seen them even in Volkssturm use in 1945. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, they were used by all manner of paramilitary organizations. Yeah. And German helmets made in World War One saw use by other nations as well, like you yeah. alluded to Finland earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They used the World War One helmet, you know. So you've got, just got this unbelievable history of this helmet that saw, I would argue, widespread use in two world wars and in the, in the interwar period as well. Yeah. I even saw a picture of somebody uh, after the year 2000 in the Estonian military wearing one. That's crazy. And it, it wasn't clear that maybe this was issued to him, you know? Yeah, that's crazy. Something, you know, made 100 years ago. Sure. So I just, the, the looks of that helmet appealed to me so much. And uh, I do like wearing one. I think we found documentation for the use of these in Landeschutzen units, which yeah. is sort of uh, related or even the same, you could argue, as what we do. Uh, so I, I, I'm glad to have the opportunity to wear a helmet like that at certain reenactment events where I think it's appropriate and where we can coordinate so that it's not just one person. Yeah, and at the last event, um, we did, some of us who did have uh, World War One helmets wore them. And I don't think that's unrealistic because you do see some photos of, you know, units that were really lower down the supply chain where, you know, maybe like a few guys still do have the World War One helmet. Sure. What about other models of World War I helmet that were used interwar and into World War II? There was the French Adrian helmet. Yeah, well, the French Adrian helmet actually underwent a change, too, in the interwar years. So the World War I French Adrian, which was the first steel helmet introduced by any nation, um, basically the story goes that this French general uh, wanted, was took a keen interest in reducing casualties amongst his men, and introduced this, basically floated the idea of, well, why don't we issue guys with helmets because these things will reduce casualties from shell splinters. Um, and so the helmet was named after him. And most helmets are not actually designed to stop bullets, they're designed to stop uh, shell splinters, which uh, is not really something which you can reenact with, but is a major, you know... It's, it's a major part of modern warfare. Um, but the World War I French, French Adrian, introduced in 1915, uh, it was like a multi-piece construction. It was really lightweight. It was kind of based off like a firefighter helmet. Um, it had like a dome and then like a two-piece skirt and then a comb. And uh, during the interwar year in 1926, they came up with a new model that was like a a solid a solid shell and then the comb was a separate piece and so that's known as the M26 interesting and those things are really interesting too the other thing, the other thing too about the French helmets which I think is cool is they had a badge on the front which indicated um, like uh, your service branch and so I don't know them all but I do know that the infantry is like a flaming bomb 
That's a cool logo. It really is. And that helmet was not used just by the French, right? No, no. It was adopted by a number of militaries. Um, I mean, Thailand, uh, Japan used them before they adopted their own pattern of helmet. Belgium. Um, there's, uh, oh, yeah, Imperial Russia, Tsarist Russia. And then later, uh, actually, the interwar Red Army continued to wear these, uh, these Adrian helmets. Let's talk about the Spanish Civil War. What kind of helmets were they using? The Spanish used this kind of weird German-looking helmet called the M26, uh, which is really cool. The thing which sucks about them is that they only wore, they only made them in size 64. Um, but uh, the Spanish Civil War, it's it's kind of a mess. They used all different kinds of helmets. Um, like the Condor Legion was there, and I've seen photos of them wearing the M16 and the M35 helmet, which we which we've talked about. Um, a lot of units got these weird uh, Czech helmets called the M30, uh, which basically looked like a bizarre. They looked like a cross between like a Japanese helmet and a World War One German helmet. Um, they're like really weird medieval looking things. Uh, I think they're really cool. I actually still have yet to get one for my collection. But uh, they have like the weird Frankenstein vampire um, vent lugs on them. Or not vampire. Frank yeah, Frankenstein wasn't a vampire, but uh, <laughs> vampire helmet sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah. I think so. it's really interesting to see what helmet models were invented by uh, certain countries and then adopted later by other countries. Sure. And also the total dead ends. Like... I have a Danish helmet from before uh, World War II. So I think it came out in 1923. And uh, it's, it's heavy. It's enormous. I think it's, 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 it's apparent that this thing was designed by a country that witnessed World War I in its doorstep, but that never actually had to deal with the sort of practicalities of trench warfare. Um, and I think it's super neat. But uh, it's not really a practical helmet. Sure. And so, sort of small wonder that these things weren't adopted by any other nation. What, um, about, what about Italian helmets? Did they get used by other nations? Or? Oh, yeah. The, uh, I mean, you see them used by the Finns. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they, had, they got some M33s. I think the Italian helmet's really cool. Um, you know, they, uh, I have one which is for the uh, Bersaglieri, which is like an elite infantry, which has like this bizarre... Uh, feather plume, you know, like, you know, and then like the Alpini helmets, which were their sort of mountain troopers. They had this like weird, like poof ball and feather on the side. Leave it to the Italians, you know. <laughs> and then the the pre-war Dutch helmet was also used by Romania. Yes, it was. I love those helmets. They're so weird looking, but uh, I love how they have like a, a lot of countries, you know, before World War II, they would put like their national crest um, on the front of it, the French, uh, or they would put some sort of symbol on the front of it, which I just think is really cool. And uh, I kind of wish people would go back to that. And then of course the, the British were wearing, uh, for most of the war, like the iconic, a version of based on the iconic Tommy helmet. Yeah, of World the Brody War I. helmet, you know, the Brody helmet. It's so cool. Um, those things are awesome. America had adopted the same general pattern for World War One use. Yep, yeah, the uh, model nineteen seventeen, and I, I, 
I, I still need to get a, a 1917A1 Kelly helmet. I think those things are really, really cool. The things they were wearing at, like, Wake Island, you know? Sure. Bataan Death March, uh, like, Pearl Harbor. I think those things are awesome. And then after that era, America adopted its own M1 helmet, which it was the, you know, it was it was widely used by American World War One. I. I think America was the only nation to be using that, like, as a widely adopted thing in World War Two, right? Yeah, they were. They were. They but were. then after World War Two, that became such a commonly it seen be- standard NATO helmet. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons why I really like uh, sort of World War One and interwar helmets is because every nation kind of had their own thing going. Or even if they were using like a helmet that was derived from another nation, like you know, some countries, you know, used the, either the Stahlhelm or the Adrian, they. They that they made an effort to like make it their own. You know, they put like some cool badge on it that like symbolized their country. And then after 1945, most you know during the Cold War, most nations kind of just wore either an M1 helmet derivative or like a Soviet SSH 40 helmet derivative. And I feel like some of the some of the national sort of uniqueness was gone. Yeah, the flair. Yeah, the flair. The national flair. Yeah, national flair. So, All right, so from a reenactment perspective, let's talk about uh, helmets. You want to put together a World War II impression that is absolutely correct, and your main objective is to get uh, the cheapest possible helmet. What are the impression options for you? What year? Well, let's just say you want to do a World War, you want to do a World War II impression. You could do any nationality. You could do any army. You are you are going to do an absolutely hyper detailed, correct impression, but it's going to be predicated on the cheapest helmet that you can German get. German M forty two helmets are uh, the cheapest. Whether whether I mean, you could either get a repro, or if you want to spend extra money, you could get a get an original refurbished one. But M forty twos are still the cheapest. Sure, maybe the M forty two reproduction is yeah. as cheap as. Almost any helmet that you could get for yeah. any army, right? Yeah. But you mentioned, for example, Soviet helmets at less than a hundred dollars. Yeah, uh, you can get uh, you can get uh, SSH forty under a hundred dollars. You can probably actually get one for, you know, cheap, like under fifty dollars if you're lucky. So that's definitely cheap. What about um, what about Italian helmets? Where do, where are they going to fall in price wise for something that's correct for World War II reenacting? <sighs> Unfortunately. There's no, uh, unfortunately, you can get a you can get an Italian helmet that's correct for World War II, but you might have to have it repainted, hmm. and that's going to be more of an expensive prospect. You're looking at probably like maybe two hundred dollars. You know, you buy the helmet show. You could probably get you could probably score one for under a hundred bucks, but then you might have to either buy, either pay somebody to restore it, or if you feel real frisky, restore it yourself. We haven't really gone into the the many differences and variations of the World War II American helmet. But for some World War II impressions, you could use, I think, a swivel bale front seam helmet. Yep. And what are you going to pay for something like that that's usable for reenacting, do you think? I think you could still probably get one of those for, I mean, if you're lucky, you could probably score one of those for like under $100. Under $100? Yeah. But that said, I don't really do GIs, so I don't, I do not want to, I do not want to bet money on that. Uh, World War II British helmets are a total mystery to me. But same, same. Actually, I, I, I'm, 
I really am not the person to ask on this. But I think gen- it sounds like generally, if if you're getting a helmet for a hundred dollars or less, you're com- you're getting something that's coming in on the low end of what you'd have to get for a World War II impression. Yeah. What about the high end? What are the impressions where the helmet is an obstacle? I mean, any kind of like obscure nationality, you know, like a Romanian helmet, you know. Especially if you want to do like one with the with the badge on it, good luck. <laughs> Is that that's that's a matter of way maybe where you're not looking for a good deal, you're just looking for an opportunity yeah. to buy. Oh yeah, Polish helmet, you know, like the uh, the WZ thirty one. Um, they made less than thirty thousand of them. Um, apparently, it's actually illegal to export them outside of Poland now. Mm-hmm. I have one. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not selling it. Sure. But yeah, I got extremely lucky on that thing. And I think uh, I remember you saying at one time in the past that the, the Soviet SSH-36 helmet is not a particularly easy or cheap thing to oh, acquire. No, I either. mean, that, that, a shell on that thing, you'd be lucky if you pay $200 for one, you know, probably more like 300 And uh, then you might have to get it restored. You're looking at $500. Sure. Yeah. So a lot of big spread there. And of course, as we mentioned earlier, there's German helmets that are going to set you back five. There is one thing I did want to mention now, and I should have mentioned this earlier maybe, but uh, so a lot of times, a lot of Soviet helmets that are on the market are cheaper um, because these things were basically found on battlefields in, you know, Eastern Europe, and they were in what's called relic condition. And that means that thing is like really, really, really pitted. Um, it's damaged. Um, and then some artisan basically took it and either used Bondo or solder to, after stripping away the rust, to try to basically smooth the surface of the metal. And uh, then they repainted it. And basically, those are going to be cheaper. Those are, I think, more common. Um, but if you want something that is like not in that condition, not in like a restored relic condition, you're looking at more money. Often, sure. oftentimes a significant amount of money. I see this sometimes where people are buying ground dug relic helmets of various armies, uh, and intending to restore them. And depending, like if you just want something that's just going to sit on a shelf, if you're not a World War II reenactor, but you just want something that you can kind of gaze at as you uh, play video games, it doesn't matter if there's Bondo under the yeah. paint. But if you're looking for something that you're actually going to use, the presence of automotive body filler underneath the paint, I mean, it, it, you as the paint wears, it's going to expose the filler. Uh, the weight may be different. The feel may be different. I find the feel is different. I mean, the things feel plasticky to me. Um, sure. And the way you can, uh, kind of the easiest way you can tell is that a lot of World War II, you know, helmets, either be them German or Soviet, they had factory markings stamped in them, like a size uh, with the German helmets. And with the Soviet helmets, there was no size, but there was like a lot. Actually, there was a size. Um, like a number and then a lot number and uh, you won't see that on the bondoed helmets because that's rusted away and then been filled in with new material sure yeah i think you'd agree with me ben that uh, in my opinion 
badly pitted uh, ground dug relic helmets are just not good candidates for restoration no. if the goal is a reenactment. Helmet. No, and like oftentimes too, these things may have come from war graves too. So yeah, I mean they were. Fa- I I I think the uh, relic helmets were found in a variety of settings, yeah. but there is no doubt that people in parts of Eastern Europe have dug graves yeah. and and robbed the corpses of sellable stuff. Yeah, uh, you yeah. know it's a different part of the world. The, the ideas is different. They suffered, you know. Yeah, exactly. But exactly. certainly, I try to minimize my trade in in that kind of material because yeah. I don't want to encourage that kind of activity. Sure, and I mean, I think relic conditions they might be good for like an art project or something. You know, like I saw like a cool diorama where it was like a an original relic condition German helmet, and then inside somebody had like built a cool diorama, and I actually think that's cool. Um, I have seen some unbelievably badly rusted helmets that had no collectible value, no particular historic value, that were extensively reworked with welding in uh, new patches of metal as needed and and the use of the body filler and, and to create something that visually is a great representation of the original and at its at its core, there is metal in there that was a helmet from the time yeah. period that it that it represents. But yeah. for a reenactment use, I I don't think that would be appropriate. Yeah, I've I've seen the same, and I just I I it's not for me, and I don't recommend it. Um, so Ben, you you kind of collect restored helmets. Uh, some of them you use for reenactment, some of them you don't. Well, we talked about this recently, Chris, and. Uh, Basically, I actually would rather collect restored or restored original helmets than original helmets. And I think a part of that is because, well, first of all, they're cheaper. But second of all, I like to play with the stuff, you know, I like to be able to take it off the shelf and like hold it in my hand. And uh, I mean, I've seen this with your collection, Chris. Like, I know that you would be really bummed out if like you broke the like 80 year old chin strap on one of your original helmets or you put a scratch on it that you knew was not there before, you know, you'd yeah, be bummed out. Me. But like me. me, you know, like with a, with a, with a restored helmet, um, it's like, it's, first of all, it's a repre- it, it's a representation of something that was from World War II. I think it probably looks better than something that's 80 years old, um, unless you really want to spend thousands of dollars. And uh, I think there are probably some people who would disagree with me in, in, in me saying this, but uh, it it sparks more joy than something that I'm afraid to take off the shelf and and hold in my hand for fear of putting a scratch on it or you know changing the condition of it. And also, I think it just looks more like the things that basically soldiers in World War II handled. It doesn't have eighty years of age on top of it. Sure. Um. You've got a lot of helmets. What's left on your wants list? Let's see. Um, I want to get a. Uh, I want to get an M thirty five helmet. Um, that uh, the, the Chinese, the nationalist Chinese in the thirties, they had a contract with Germany for M thirty five helmets, and I want to get one of those. That's cool. Yeah. Um, I actually don't have. And am a good example of an American helmet. I've collected every other nationality, but I don't have a good example of an American helmet. So I want to get some American helmets from World War II. 
And what about World War One helmets? You... I have an Adrian that's under restoration. I kind of want to get a Sarist Adrian. Um... They had like a giant hammer and sickle on there, right? Or not the Sarist ones. There were... That's the Bolshevik inner war, one. That's the inner okay. war one. You know, yeah. that's like the 1920s and 30s ones, which are actually, I would like to have one of those eventually. But like the Tsarist ones, they had like the cool double-headed eagle badge on the front, you know, and they were like a brown color. I think they're cool looking. I took a Panther store, M42 Feldbluse, and this is in an era when boiling your uniforms was actually the fad. And I boiled this uniform into nothing, and it reduced itself into a um, uh, woolen soup. That was a, a real nightmare. It's really different to do reenactment in France, Italy, or even England, because there are countries that suffered from the war. In Switzerland, people are quite open, and I never got any negative reaction. There was a time where I thought, oh man, we're going to really be struggling with recruits this year. But I don't know if it's because people were sitting at home twiddling their thumbs because of COVID, but our recruitment actually has astronomically risen. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. All right, we have blown past our time, and I don't want to overtax our poor, long-suffering editor, Mike, with a (laughs) mega episode. We could talk about this for another hour, no doubt. Um, But I do want to take a moment to thank everybody who has donated to the podcast through Patreon. Uh, This is kind of... The, the, it's very, frankly, it's the only reason why uh, we're still doing the podcast. I, I love doing it, and it's a lot of fun, but it also costs money, and that you guys are making that possible for us is super important and meaningful to me. Yes, thank you all. Ben, it's been great talking to you about helmets. Thanks for sharing your wisdom. Of course. Thank you, Chris. Pleasure to be here. Everybody out there, I'll see you in the field. See you in the field. We love hearing what you think about the podcast. So why not let us know by reaching out in all the usual places, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for The Reenactors Corner and you'll find us there. And maybe think about supporting us via Patreon. No matter how big or small, your monthly donations make a huge difference. You can sign up for as little as $2 a month on patreon.com slash reenactorscorner. And as ever, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retro Man, for editing the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and we'll join us here again at The Reenactors Corner.